Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is part two of our um, classes on the uh, Sakavabhanga Sutta, an analysis of the Four Noble Truths. Um, I kind of geared something towards Louise, but I think what I'll do is I'm just going to go back to where F, where the Buddha introduces Sariputta. Sariputta is going to give this teaching, uh, just to put it in context, and we'll take it through to its conclusion today. The Buddha's words, Sariputta is able to declare, teach, describe, set forth, reveal, explain, and make plain four noble truths in detail. Having said these words, the Buddha left for the days of abiding. Sariputta then addressed those gathered. Friends, it was here that the Tathagata set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma. This Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone else in the entire world. No one can corrupt the revelation, declaration, the description, the structure, the explanation, and the clear and direct teachings of Four Noble Truths. And then he declares what they are. The Noble Truths of stress and suffering, the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the truth of the origination of that very same stress and suffering. The third noble truth that relates directly to impermanence is the noble truth of cessation of stress and suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the noble truth of the Eightfold Path of Practice leading to the cessation of stress and suffering. Again, I don't want to talk too much, uh, interject too much commentary so we can get through this. But the point of these noble truths, as opposed to other relative truths, is this is where we meet. This is where, as wise Dhamma practitioners, we come together in agreement on. And if there is disagreement on these... If there's disagreement on these four parts, in other words, if we can only agree on two or three of the four parts, we are not Dhamma practitioners. We're practicing something else. And that something else is okay. But if we want to practice the, Buddha, the, the Dhamma as the Buddha taught the Dhamma, these are the four truths we come together on. So the relative truths, we were talking about, some, there's, there's um, extremely diametrically opposed views on, in some camps about how the, the proper response to COVID. And I'm only using this not in the political sense, just to make this point. One person holding a certain view thinks that a person holding another view may even be a criminal because of the, 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 what they might be uh, bringing out onto the world. And that person might think that the person that is so vehement about people doing this and doing that is misguided and misinformed and should keep their mouth shut. Both of those are true to those people, but they're relative truths. They're not noble truths. The reason why I'm saying this is even those relative truths need to be understood by those of us practicing noble truths. We understand relative truths in the context that they are. These are things that people are taking personal, and so they're true to them, but they are not noble truths. And this is another important teaching because we can try to apply noble truths you might even say timeless truths, as the Buddha describes them often, these timeless truths in relative terms where they simply don't apply. They're not meant to. 
stress arises doesn't really relate to individual opinions on certain things because it's the individual opinion itself that's creating the stress. Okay, that's as far as I want to go on this. We can talk more about this later on, and, and it really is the point of the Dhamma and learning the difference between approval and acceptance. So, friends, what is the noble truth of stress and suffering? Birth is stressful. As a consequence of having a human life, there is going to be stress. There's nothing personal about it. And then the things that happen in life are also stressful. Sickness is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair are all stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful, and receiving what is undesired is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And we go over the five clinging aggregates often. I'm not going to go over it again here. And so now Sariputta describes birth. What is birth? Notice that the Buddhist, that Sariputta, or the Buddha anywhere, is describing physical birth or even the cause of physical birth. Because the Dhamma and the noble truths revolve around ignorance and the cessation of ignorance. So when we're talking about what is birth, in the right context, we know that we're talking about giving birth to ignorance. And what is birth? Whatever takes birth, the descent, the coming to be, the coming forth, the arising of the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of, of four noble truths. Nothing, nothing it has anything to do with physical birth. The coming forth of the five clinging aggregates, the fabrication of the sensuous realms of diverse beings. Another important line, the fabrication of the sensuous realms of diverse beings. All these fabricated non-human realms are fabricated. That's a foundational and initial teaching of the Buddha. And the Buddha is describing all of that as this is called birth. And what is aging? Aging is the decrepitude, the brokenness, the graying, the wrinkling, the decline of life force, the diminishing of mental fa faculties of diverse beings, meaning everyone. This, this happens to all beings. There's no one is separate from that. There's no one that is so diverse that they're excluded from sickness, aging, and death. This is called aging. And what is death? Death is the passing away, the breaking up, the disappearance, the completion of time. The completion of time. Why is the Buddha in here, Sariputta, teaching it, this in this manner? Isn't this an obvious thing to, for human beings to know that death is the breaking up, the disappearance, the, the completion of time? As he continues, the casting off of the body, the interruption of the, of the life faculty. Why? Because the common spiritual beliefs of the Buddhist time are just like ours. It's somehow we can find a way to a belief system that will allow us to cheat sickness, aging, and death, especially death. We can find a way to establish ourselves in a non-physical realm as a reward for our belief, our faith, our prayers, our 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 our, our, our bowing, our visualizations, our ongoing practice as a reward. Notice the difference between what the promises of that type of salvation and what the Buddha is teaching. Understand what we're doing. So again, the Buddha describes that in, in, in detail and then simply says, this is called death. As a consequence of having a human life, we're all going to die. And then he describes what is sorrow. Sorrow is sadness. The suffering of misfortune. Being touched by pain, that is sorrow. Regret is the grieving, the crying, the weeping, the wailing, the regret of suffering. 
suffering from misfortune of being touched by pain. This is called regret. And again, on and on and on. What Through pain, distress, despair. Um, let me read despair. Despair is despondency and desperation of anyone suffering from misfortune or being touched by a painful thing. This is called despair. And this is starting to relate to more of the mental aspects of suffering too. And what is the stress of not getting what is desired? Again, notice that the Buddha is simply describing what occurs to every human life, but or Sariputta, in the context of distress. Meaning this, we're, because of our lack of acceptance of our own humanity, we create additional stress from these ordinary occurrences. And what is the stress of not getting what is desired? In those beings subject to birth, giving birth to moments rooted in ignorance, the wish arises, may I not be subject to birth? Excuse me. Many, if not, let me say most every spiritual, philosophical, religious discipline Some in very direct ways, some in very occluded ways, deny the fact that we should even honor birth. It's, it's either directly taught or implicit, implicitly implied that birth is strictly suffering. Christians are taught that Jesus died for our sins, and that's declared over and over again. I was taught as a Roman Catholic that because I was born, I have something called original sin. Every religion has forms of that. If we are subject to birth, we're screwed. The Buddha is saying that we're subject to birth because we have a human life. That's as far as we need to go. There's not an, another additional consequence save having a human life and all of its vagaries. So, in the birth, the wish arises, may I not be subject to having this human life. Let me get that better life that I'm promised in Tulsita heaven or Christian heaven or, or Jewish heaven or Muslim heaven. Or, or in the, um, the, the, the shaman religion, such as finding salvation through nature or natural spirits. May I not be subject to birth. May birth not come to me. The Buddha, or Sariputta, teaches wishing does not bring cessation. Again, that, the, the, the wishing for salvation does not bring cessation. This is the stress of not getting what is desired. Furthermore, an uninformed human being, subject to giving birth to ignorance, sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, the wish arises, oh, may I not be subject to all of this, to sickness, aging, and death. May this not happen to me. So first, Saraputta teaches us, as a consequence of having a human life, these things will befall you. There's nothing personal about it. And then he says, it, it's exacerbated by those that wish that it doesn't happen, that are not actually having a common human experience. So the question arises, who the hell am I to insist that, that humanity not befall me? And what does that imply to, to me? What, what am I saying I want out of life? What I'm saying is I don't want to have a human life. I don't want the birth because I don't want, I'm subject to because of that birth. Sickness, aging, and death. Not getting what is desired. Always grasping after what I think I need. And then suffering through life as that personal experience of suffering the five clinging aggregates. May these things not befall me. These things are not, Sariputta then, then says, these things are not avoided by wishing, the belief in salvation, or in special treatment. 
such as I did all these good things, now maybe the, the, Lord, the Lord God Buddha can save me from all these terrible things. This is, all of that, is the stress of not getting what is desired. So if I find myself at any moment wishing that myself, the person I'm with or not with, the events of the world be different than they, than they are, that is the stress. I am I'm inflicting in myself the stress of not getting what is desired. And I've lost my mind in this moment. How do I make peace with what with all of that? The only way is in this present moment. And we do it by laying the foundation in each and every moment of being at peace with the mundane things, not the grand things, not the things that are so obvious. And ultimately that resolves in the most mundane thought that I'm making peace with. And what is that, that single most mundane thought? I'm not good enough. I need something to be different. I'm not good enough or my life isn't good enough right here and right now. Another word with taking that moral judgment out of good and big versus bad is this moment is not sufficient. It must be different than it is. That is the most insane thought when you think about it because how could this moment be any different than it is? It's what's occurring. That's the ultimate in self-loathing. It's the ultimate in losing your mind. Let me continue. This is the stress of not getting what is desired. I'm just skipping over a little commentary that I wrote in there. Saraputta asks, and what are the five clinging aggregates that continue stress? The clinging to form aggregate, clinging to this is me, the, the view of self in this body, the clinging to feeling aggregates. Most of us describe in an ongoing way our life and our own relationship to ourselves and others based on how I'm making myself feel and how I think other people are making me or how the world is making me feel. We describe the, the value of our own existence based on temporary feelings where we learn through the Dhamma that's foolish. Or the clinging to the perception aggregate, the thought that I'm having about these feelings. Or the clinging to the fabrication aggregate, the mental constructs I've made about these thoughts and feelings. Or the clinging to the consciousness aggregate, my thinking that I'm learning now as a wise Dhamma practitioner, my thinking that, that is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, that's what I'm clinging to, and that's what is maintaining the stress of ignorance, clinging to the consciousness aggregate, clinging to my own fabricated thoughts that are giving birth, giving rise to another moment rooted in ignorance or not. These are the five clinging aggregates, Saraputta says. And then he concludes that in a very simple and declarative statement. This, friends, is the noble truth of stress. Now, Having said that, is there anyone here in this class that, that does not understand what I just said? And please say so if, you're, if, you, if you do not understand it. Because now going forward, you, you, you will admit to yourself that you understand stress. You're going to understand it at ever more deepening level. But if you can understand this, even at, at this beginning, and I know we're not beginners here, but at this beginning intellectual initial level, this is the foundation for the profound understanding that is an awakened human mind. The Buddha declares that the whole purpose of his Dhamma is understanding what Sariputta just taught us, understanding stress. The first noble truth is the noble truth of stress. The Buddha declares that awakening is understanding stress. So, can I, can I just please. ask, John, just 
just yes, for Tom. a clarification or just to expand on something that's related. Um, you, you sort of said to, 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 you should start by being at peace with the most mundane things. I think you said something, something like that. So is that this sort of idea that, that rather than, um, you, you know, worrying about sort of potential, I don't know, difficult situations that may occur in your life, uh, speculating around them. Um, it's, it's really all about, um, you know, you build up your progress by being okay with even noticing those more subtle forms or, or those more sort of everyday forms of self-loathing or, or, you know, um, dissatisfaction with a, with a current moment. And that that's almost like a way of, building up your your ability to be able to accept life as life occurs and then when bigger events happen in the future you're that much more sort of able to deal or process them in a in a mindful and um, peaceful way because you've built up that ability to 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 accept life as life occurs is is, is that is that um to just wanted to clarify that Yes, th- thank you, Tom. Thanks for the question and your clarification. It's exactly that. Uh, it, it's um, the the major things that we're all dealing with, or the big things that happen to our life, are the obvious things that we we can't avoid but bring into Dhamma practice. But as we're practicing jhana and our concentration is deepening, we're able to notice the mundane, ongoing distractions simply because of our Dhamma practice. And so it is by. Um, you could you could almost say it's it's like going to the gym by by lifting the weights of the mundane recognition and abandonment of those distractions we're building this we're building ourselves up we're building that foundation to allow for us to come into a situation like a worldwide pandemic make wise decisions but not lose our minds over it again we're able to stay because we're able to stay present for the mundane moments of our life we are now able to stay present for the more uh, magnificent is a um, uh, attention grabbing events of our lives. You could say attention, you know, meaning distracting. Um, but it is just that. And so I think you're all understanding that, and you see this in your own jhana practice that we're going to touch to today, the differing levels of jhana. Those differing, the deepening levels of jhana are exactly what you just described, Tom. It's gaining the ability to recognize in this moment my mind is distressed by a feeling, a thought, or the present quality of my mind. And that ultimately resolves the quality of my mind. It goes beyond the, just the quality of my mind, but the, it is this thought that's distressing me. And that is the mundane, that's the, the mundane thought that, that leads us, takes us to the past and to the future and does not allow us to live in this present moment. And it is to these very subtle levels that we're talking about here. But again, notice where, where Sariputta is teaching us, and the Buddha always teaches the noble truths in this way too. At the level that we can relate to it, the things that we all, birth, sickness, aging, and death, not getting what we all know that. And so we can, we can access the more mundane, so-called hidden levels of our own nature by being willing to look at those things, the, the things that might seem almost too minor. Jhana meditation gives us the ability and the focus to look at just those things, life as life occurs. So thank you for the question. 
I hope my answer was helpful. Again, Sariputta concludes, this is a noble truth of stress. And what is a noble truth of the origination of stress? What gets this whole thing going for us? The very craving that makes for becoming further ignorant. A mind rooted in ignorance will always crave for another moment rooted in ignorance. That's the only way for ignorance to sustain itself. Inherent in the word ignorance, in the, in the root of the word ignorance, is its own maintenance. Ignorance must continue, must find a way to continue to ignore its own ignorance in order to continue to ignore its own ignorance. That's the paradox we talked about in the Nagara Sutta. I won't go back into that feedback loop that the Buddha described in that Sutta. How he awakened himself by recognizing that. That he, 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 there was no way he had him until that point to recognize that he was living a life that was compelled to ignore his own ignorance of humanity. And so that's why he taught this Dhamma in this way. To say this is the common human problem. It's ignoring your own humanity. Not something grand, not something outside of human experience another life, another physical realm, but right here and right now, this is the common human problem. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is, there is a way to, to end it, and it is the Eightfold Path. Again, I'm just putting emphasis on this whole package that we're talking about this week and next week with the, the analysis of the Eightfold Path. Craving and clinging to passion and delight, meaning passion and delight that's rooted in that same ignorance. And trance, Mesmerize is another word for entrance. Entrance here and there with craving for sensuality, craving for becoming further ignorant, craving for non-becoming, meaning established in, in magical and mystical realms. This is called the noble truth of the origination of stress. So again, even in this sutta, the Buddha and Sariputta are saying, anytime you find yourself falling into a speculative uh, establishment of yourself, a non-physical establishment of yourself, stop. It's a fabrication. It only, con it, it only continues stress. And what, friends, is a noble truth of the cessation of stress? The renunciation, the relinquishment, the release, the letting go, the remainderless fading away and complete cessation of craving. So again, look at the simple direction. Ignorance leads to craving. How do we let go of this whole thing? We let go of craving for another moment rooted in ignorance. You've heard me say over and over again that another word for that kind of craving is continued eye-making. Continued self-reference with relation to what's occurring in the world. This is me, identifying with every thought, word, and idea that occurs. That is ongoing stress. What the Buddha is teaching, what Sariputta is teaching, is recognizing that ongoing eye-making. And what do we do with it? We don't take it to 20 years of analysis. We don't judge ourselves harshly for, for getting caught up in this, this ignorance. We don't pray. We don't hope for. We don't do anything else but recognize it and abandon it, just as Tom mentioned just a moment ago, in the moment that it's occurring, in that mundane moment. And again, it is the mundaneness of Dhamma practice that most everyone that I've ever taught finds the most difficulty. It just doesn't seem like it's, a, it's supplying enough distraction, which is really why most people come to any type of religious practice. This pure practice, if you will, does not provide enough distraction. It needs to be more. 
That's what started occurring during, even during the Buddha's lifetime. That, and there's many sutras that talked about that. And immediately upon the Buddha's passing, the conversation among some of the monks was, the old bastard's dead, now we can make this what we want. Immediately. And then if you, you read, you know, I get into the history of it, from the first council up until the subsequent councils, they did exactly what, what the Buddha and Sariputta said, don't do. Stop fabricating dharmas over this. This is called the noble truth of the cessation of stress. And what is the noble truth of the path of, of Dharma practice that leads directly to the cessation of stress? This path is the noble eightfold path. Again, no ambiguity, right view? And the Buddha, it's our Buddha teaches us what these things are. Right view is knowledge with regards to stress. That's what we're gaining here. And again, does anybody think we can't do this? Of course not. We can gain a knowledge of stress. Initial practitioners don't understand how deep and penetrating this knowledge is, but that's where we begin. Excuse me. <coughs> knowledge with regards to stress, knowledge with, re with regards to the origination of stress, knowledge with regard to the cessation of stress, and knowledge with regard to the, to the Eightfold Path. Meaning, right view is knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Right intention is the intention to maintaining mindfulness for the re renunciation, for freedom from ill will, for harmlessness, for cessation from views ignorant, ignorant of Four Noble Truths. That's right intention. Again, it directly addresses the Second Noble Truth, doesn't it? I mean, this, the second, the causation of, of stress and suffering. Right speech is abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive the divisive speech, abstaining from abusive speech, and abstaining from gossip and idle chatter. This is right speech. Observing our speech, both internally and externally, is usually the initiation or initial interaction with the Eightfold Path because we can recognize what we're saying to others is often not in accordance. But also, jhana meditation gets us to immediately start looking at the internal speech that we always have going on, the internal story that we're always telling ourselves. Recognizing that is an aspect of right speech as well. It's also an aspect of being gentle with ourselves or not. Right action is abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, and abstaining from sexual misconduct. This is right action. That's an important line just to make the point, sexual misconduct. The Buddha never taught, he only taught abstinence uh, 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 not not abstinence. Uh, what what is the right word I'm thinking of? He's not having sex. I just can't think of the word. Uh, only for people that were in the original sangha, because of their close congregation, it was simply impractical for men and women living in that close of an environment to also be playing out the romantic games. He recognized the distraction and said, "We're just not going to do that here." And again, I don't want to get too deep into that, but that's the only reason. The Buddha never said that there was anything wrong with sex, but he told us to apply the same rules that we bring to the rest of our lives, meaning right speech right and right action to our sexual endeavors. John, sorry yes, to interrupt. Because you think about the word, you mean like refrain? The word celibacy. That's the way, I don't know why I couldn't think of it. Maybe I don't like it, but... Yeah, I couldn't think of the word celibacy. The Buddha never taught that. Just yeah, just within just within the sangha, and it's a practical it's a practical teaching. And yeah, there's a lot of other fallacies that that run around that. So, 
Um, yeah, and that's that's enough about that, just to make that point. And and again, and, and when I talk about this to some people that are having difficulties, and even the idea that the Buddha would wouldn't wouldn't allow for homosexuality is just it's just insane. I mean, it, 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 it the the, uh, the Buddha had the most liberated mind of all of all time. What he would be against is people in any using sex in any way as a as a power grab in a way that would be hurtful to someone else. But he and what he would teach would that that sex in any form should always be be premised by by giving and compassion and gentleness. It, it, so the idea that he would be against anything else is is just ridiculous. Sorry to get off on my high horse there, but. Uh, right livelihood. Right livelihood is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones has abandoned dishonest livelihood and provides for themselves with honesty. When I first came across right livelihood, my first thought was, why is the Buddha even talking about this? Isn't that covered by right speech and right action? And then I realized, and also reading some of the suttas, that the Buddha saw that otherwise good and honest men and women, those that, were, that would be practicing right speech and right action, would take license with that when it was time to put food on the table for, for spouse and baby. And so he made, he made it a point that even in, and especially in the manner that we earn a living, we must practice these tenets. Right effort is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones generates the skillful desire, who is persistent, who remains mindful of their intent, for the non-arising of unskillful qualities that have yet arisen, who remains mindful of the of their intent for the abandoning of unskillful qualities that have arisen, and who remains mindful for maintaining non-confusion and increasing, uh, and for increasing, developing, and the culmination of skillful qualities that have yet arisen. This is right effort. Again, I don't want to go over each point, but what the Buddha is saying, what Saraputta is saying is, Ongoing Dhamma practice within the correct framework is right effort. Right mindfulness is, is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones. Now again, right mindfulness relates to refined mindfulness. What do we do with our mindfulness? How do we apply it? One remains mindful of the body in and of itself while remaining ardent and alert and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. In the, What is the Buddha saying in reference to... Um, uh, to the body itself, just that. Ardent, alert, and mindful. This is all that it is. It's just a body. I'm not applying anything to it. There's no self-reference. It's just a body. And notice the progression. As a consequence of having a birth, yes, I'm going to have a body. Nothing personal about it. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of feelings in and of themselves, etc., etc., again, while remaining ardent and alert, while putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That, again, it's a line that says, in my feelings do not need to be any different. Greed and distress would be about my feelings, that I need my feelings to be different or not even have those feelings. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of thoughts in and of themselves, etc. With greed and reference to the world. I don't need my thoughts to be any different than they are. How can I do that? I have to stop taking my thoughts personally. I have to by using my thoughts to create my own identity. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful 
of the present quality of mind in and of itself, excuse me, while remaining ardent, alert, and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. This is right mindfulness. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's what I say to, to end all of our jhana meditation sessions. Notice the quality of your mind. Be at peace with your mind. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And as we, as we develop Dhamma practice, that last quality of mind, that peaceful quality is what is established and maintained no matter what is occurring in our lives and in our world. That's, the Buddha describes that fourth level of jhana as equanimity. It's a balanced state of mind. Uh, Ed, it looks like our friend Ed was having trouble staying online. Um, welcome back, Ed. Oh, thank you, John. Sorry, Lou, I'm going to just go over this again just because he just came back. Uh, right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of thoughts in and of themselves while remaining ardent, alert, and mind. I'm sorry, I wanted to go to relate the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of the present quality of mind in and of itself. Again, that fourth foundation of mindfulness. We practice this all the time. Again, Tom brought that up in what he talked about earlier. Every time off our cushions, or on our cushions, doesn't matter, but off our cushions, when we recognize that we're distracted, that we're caught up in self-referential views, we're caught up in the stress of our own lives, and take a breath, bring our minds back on our, our bodies, we're incorporating the fourth foundation of mindfulness in this moment. Because when we do that, I find myself in this moment, um, uh, I, I got a, an important job interview tomorrow and I'm, I'm all distressed about it. I can't stop thinking about it. And I recognize that I'm causing that to myself in this moment. I take a moment, unite my mind and my body, recognize that I'm doing that. And in this moment, I've united my mind and my body. And in that moment, I've established the fourth foundation of mindfulness. I've established the ability to recognize the quality of my mind. In the next moment, I might lose that because I get caught back up in the world. And that's when I, re when I reference that by saying I've lost my mind. But we have the tools to continually come back to that fourth foundation of mindfulness by taking a breath. Right meditation is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones has established seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities. We stop grasping. They enter or remain in the first jhana. This first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. Again, rapture is an archaic word that is often misunderstood. We're not using it to refer to the second coming or any type of apocalyptic um, interpretation. Another word in the way we use it in Dhamma practice is joyful engagement with. A deep engagement with. It's almost a, a well, I don't want to go, go too, too far away. So in this sense, a rapture born of that very seclusion, I am joyfully engaged. I'm taking great joy in the fact that I am now secluded from the world. And that's important. That's the establishment, the beginning establishment of jhana practice. I recognize and take pleasure from my seclusion. I've separated myself from the world. Rather than being distressed, and usually this will arise by a feeling of boredom, 
because I'm no longer engaged, that the world is no longer here to distract me. I've closed the door. That's usually the biggest problem that people, or the initial problem that people have with meditation, is just sitting quietly. And I realized a little, rather early in my practice, what a strange thing it is that me as an adult human being can't just decide to sit quietly and do it. I have to have a method. I'm, I'm fortunate that I came across this method, but it, I require a method as an adult human being to simply sit quietly. Why is that? Because my mind is prone to distraction. It's prone to grasping after the second noble truth. That first jhana is experienced as rapture, as pleasure, knowing that I can do something about it. I can seclude myself from that. Rapture born of that very seclusion. And that is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I take a breath. Usually I'll find that my thought, I'm back up in my thoughts. I direct my thought back to my breath. That's directed thought. There's nothing magical or mystical or long and involved about directed thought. It's just that. It's directing my thought back to my breath. And evaluation is, when I first start meditation, we've all done this, I start judging it. Am I doing this right? It's too long. It's too short. It's, you know, whatever, whatever objections we come up to, to jhana. I don't like that bald guy that's teaching me. I like, I'd rather chant. All those things are evaluation. Recognize it. Directed thought and evaluation are present in the initial phase of jhana meditation. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just present. Why is it important? Because furthermore, the ending of the defilement, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, depends on deepening our, our meditation practice, depends on the second jhana, which is distilling of directed thought and evaluation. So the first jhana, we all come to meditation, we take pleasure in the seclusion we've established and sitting on our cushion, closing the door and sitting down. And we recognize that we're we're directing our thoughts back to our breath and we're evaluating our practice. That's common. As my concentration deepens, I recognize that my thoughts, and it might only be for two breaths, but my directed thought has stilled. And for those two breaths or three breaths or five breaths or 10 minutes of breathing, I'm no longer evaluating my practice. I'm simply breathing. That second jhana is also experienced as rapture and pleasure pleasure, but now now born of concentration. So I've taken rapture from the initial stage of just the, the joy of the pleasure of seclusion to now recognizing there's joy in concentration. I'm, t- I'm developing pure joy by developing concentration. Why is that important? Because this is what the Buddha described as becoming rightly self-awakened. I am now directing my jhana practice, my dhamma practice. I am becoming self-enthused rather than outwardly enthused. I am directing my jhana practice rather than my commitment to a sangha, to a lineage, to a teacher, to a set of books, to a set of practices, to anything. I am the one that's doing it. And this is the only way that dhamma practice can be practiced. You can Hopefully you can find a wise teacher and you can find a useful dhamma, you found it. And you can find a well-focused and well-informed sangha. All of those things have to be in place. But unless you do it yourself, none of those will make any difference. Wise restraint at the point of contact. That that joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. 
So notice that. And again, the Buddha's not talking about permanence. Nothing is permanent. He's talking about recognizing that it occurs. And I can go back to when I first started developing concentration intentionally and recognizing, wow, this is something I can do. And it is just like lifting weights. The more that I do it, the more well-concentrated I can, I can become. And it felt good. And I think you're all feeling the same thing. Every one of us has discussed this during class in one way or another, maybe not just in the context of taking pleasure in it, but understanding the, the, the value of being able to control my mind in this moment. Again, it's what Tom talked about earlier. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements, the defilements depends on the third jhana, which is the fading of rapture. Again, it doesn't mean that our jhana practice is now becoming miserable because I'm not, it, there's no pleasure there. It's simply fallen away. My mind is moving towards that state of equanimity that no longer requires joyful engagement. It's simply an established quality of mind. They remain equanimous, a balanced quality of mind, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure. Sensitive to pleasure. That's different than being pleasure, being uh, established in pleasure, isn't it? And it doesn't mean sensitive to pleasure, it doesn't mean grasping after pleasure. It means just what it means. It means I'm sensitive to it. My mind is calm enough and well concentrated enough that I am now sensitive to pleasure. And notice the Buddha doesn't say you're sensitive to pleasure and you hate it because that's just a version. Oh, I didn't say diversion. It is a version. Sensitive to pleasure. It's a key to awakening, isn't it? I'm sensitive to pleasure. I'm sensitive in this moment that there is pleasure. But because I am well concentrated, I don't have to lose my mind over it. I don't have to go too far with it. There remain equanimous, mindful, alert, sensitive to pleasure. With the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. And I would bet every one of you has experienced that as well. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth jhana, which is the abandoning of evaluation. And I could put the word in there completely. We're just present. They enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They sit permeated in mind and body, in mind and body, not just mind, with pure bright awareness. The fourth jhana, which is a pleasant abiding. Again, a completely ordinary terms, pure bright awareness is still an ordinary term, and, the, and again, described as a pleasant abiding, not something that is unattainable or otherworldly, a pleasant abiding. But, not but, what I've come to discover through my own practice that a pleasant abiding is the most nurturing abiding that I could ever establish for myself when it's within the framework of the Dhamma. This is a nurturing abiding. It's, an, it's not an abiding that is only on our cushions. It's the abiding we take off our cushions and carry with us because of our well-concentrated mind now being able to hold refined mindfulness, the Eightfold Path as our perspective for walking through life. This is the fourth jhana, which is pleasant abiding. This is right meditation. In other words, if your meditation practice must incorporate these things for it to be called right meditation or jhana meditation. Saraputta continues, this is a noble truth of the Eightfold Path of Practice 
that leads directly to the cessation of stress. Friends, it was here that the Tathagata, the Buddha, set in motion the unexcelled wheel of the Dhamma, only one wheel. This Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the entire world. No one, and we know this, true, and I, how, do, how do, this next, set, next sentence is true, and the proof of it is we are doing this right now. We are all experiencing this truth, even after 2,600 years, even after a concerted effort to abandon this, this Dhamma. And see how true these words are. No one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure that we have in place, the explanation, and the clear and direct teaching of Four Noble Truths. That was a mere predicting, a prediction 2,600 years ago, but it was a truth, wasn't it? Because we're experiencing it. This is what Venerable Sariputta said, gratified those in attendance, awakened. That's uh, the, the Sakavabhanga Sutta. Uh, next week, we're going to get into the analysis of the Eightfold Path. Uh, I'm sorry, Alex had to go, but uh, I want to hear what you have to say about this. Um, let me, uh, let's go to Jordan. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for the thanks for the detailed class today. Let me put my video on. Um, yeah, there you are. Yeah, I guess just some things that I, I wrote down were um, things that um, just phrases that I liked, like um, uh, like being sensitive to pleasure um, is a, just a, another great way of just. Um, yeah, being being there and present and appreciative of yeah. of the good things in life, and even yeah, not necessarily the good things, but aware of all kind of sensations and all kind of experiences. Yep. And um, like um, uh, like you said earlier, Tom, that um, about this <clears throat> the moment not being um, sufficient. Where we talked about um, mundanity, and especially um, uh, I'm I'm guilty of that a lot um, in the winter in in london and just kind of dreaming of um anywhere more remote and tropical art and just wishing you were kind of most yeah. other places is is something i think about a lot and kind of thinking about holidays booking holidays and just kind of yeah we do kind of need holidays and that is a okay thing to to do but just being aware that um that we are doing that as well is is so important and aware that yeah, constantly focusing and obsessing on being somewhere else is um, is not super healthy. So, kind of catching yourself um, when when I'm doing that is, is and recognizing it and kind of abandoning it in, in the moment yeah. and being being present for the, the good things in my life today. Like going to the coffee shop and finishing a project and having a nice warm house and eating a eating a nice meal is um, is is super valuable and uniting the mind and body when um when you do that and meaning kind of doing the full foundation of mindfulness as we're as we're uniting your mind and a body and, and and kind of casting away our um clingings for future um ways we want our lives to be different is um yeah it's just another good reminder of well, it's good, good to remind myself that we need to, that I need to do that in my life from mm. a daily, hourly situation, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, thank you, George. Now, you, again, you're describing uh, a, a well-developed uh, Dharma practice, uh, practice in this moment. The sensitive to pleasure is also just, um, ultimately, it's just being sensitive to everything that happens in your human life, the whole gambit, uh, the whole experience of having, having this life, pleasure in, in my own humanity. Um, and, you know, that when, when we can develop our minds to that level, that level of, I call it, radical acceptance. Um, that is the establishment of common peace, isn't it? Because then I don't, I don't need this moment to be any different than it is. I'm, I'm ta- I am sensitive to the pleasure of this moment, whether it's, um, you know, a, 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 a less than ideal diagnosis from the doctor, or the word that I got tickets to a great concert. It's, it's experienced the same way, you know, with a calm and peaceful mind, uh, because that is the. the it's not the events. It's not the, the the doctor's news or the concert news. It's it's the news of this moment. It's being ple- it's being present for this moment. That is being sensitive to pleasure, isn't it? Because we take our pleasures in our humanity, not in the things of humanity. Ultimately, so thank you, Jordan. Very well, well said. Ed, how are you? I'm doing fine, John. Aside from my unstable internet connection. Yeah, sorry to see that, hear that. Um, yeah, um, the, um, the comments you made about, uh, um, rejecting who you are and where you are and all that being somehow or other traceable to earlier conditioning in your case, you know, your Catholic conditioning. And also in my case, I was, uh, I had many, many years of Catholic education yeah. and studied many of the Catholic mystics and theologians. Yep, me too. And, uh, I find myself... quite often um, doing just that, thinking that uh, the aggregates are to be rejected, not the clinging. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, somehow or other I realize I'm thinking it's wrong to have a body, it's wrong to have feelings, it's wrong to have perceptions, it's wrong to have uh, consciousness of these things and mental constructs and whatnot. So the, the effort is misdirected. Yes. For the rejection of the aggregates rather than the rejection of the clean, which establishes a self around the aggregates. Yep. And this is a this is a rather persistent thing that uh, I have to be mindful of, and I imagine other people might too. So I was really appreciative that you made those comments. Yeah. Again, thank you. Ed. That's such an important point, and uh, it shows a, a, a profound understanding of what we're doing here. The the aggregates themselves are simply are described here too they're simply a consequence of having a human life it's when we cling these aggregates together it's the word aggregates is is mixing things up uh it's when we cling these aggregates together and and form an identity over them that's what we do by clinging that they become a problem but throughout life you know we are we're a physical form that has feelings that human being creates perceptions and fabrications and they are they persist they they continue with ongoing consciousness Again, when they're rooted in ignorance, they become a problem. But uh, left, uh, you, dependent origination also describes the aggregates in an in an interesting way uh, that that lead to this understanding too. Though, so thank you, Ed. Glad you joined us today. Tom, how are you? I'm good, thank you, uh, John. Thanks for the teaching. My pleasure. Um, yeah, um, I. 
I guess I'll I'll follow on a little bit from what Jordan was sharing, um, which I think connects to what you were talking about, which is right right view, right? So Jordan was showing right view in what or, or was reflecting the right view that we had sort of learnt from from the teachings, and um, you know I find I, I'm sure it's I, I I won't speak for Jordan, but but maybe well I think we can all identify with this. Um, the right view is the, in some ways, the easy part, because you can make it makes sense. You know, when you stop to think about it, it of course it makes sense. You know, when you're saying, um, uh, you know, wanting anything, wanting the present moment to be any different than what it is, is the most absurd thought in the world, right? right? And yet. And, and and when you stop and think about it, 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 it as long as you have an open mind, then it, it does make sense, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So so I think the you know these classes, for example, are that opportunity to enter into right view for the first, yes. potentially for the first time for some people. Um, and then I know that there are lots of sort of increasingly subtle forms of right view, um, yeah. which the more you get deeper into your practice the more you apply right view in different in different ways um but contrasting with that you know with the that massive challenge that we all face of distraction um and i I just find it so so fascinating really because i i um i'm somebody who's i guess i've always wanted to be a bit of an an achiever right so whether it be uh, you know achieving in whether it be academics or whether it be sport or whether it be business, yeah. I'm always trying to achieve, uh, or I have been, I have that sort of um, gene, I guess, yeah. wanting to achieve stuff. Um, and my right view today tells me that um, the one single most important thing I could ever focus my time on is the Dharma because everything... Yeah. Everything springs from that, right? Everything yep. emerges from that. It doesn't mean to say you can't do sport and all of these other things, but if you have a calm, peaceful mind, um, it, it surely has to be the fundamental piece, you know, missing piece in the jigsaw for for, for me or for all of us to, to be able to live, um, uh, you know, better lives. Yeah. And yet, it's so distracting. It's so much easier for me to learn a language or, you know, focus, not that I speak a language perfectly, but I can put all my effort into it. I can focus on it and because it it gives that sense of achievement, which it's the hardest skill um, to master because we're constantly have these minds that are are just feeding us distraction all day long. And even listening to you, John, I was, I noticed, you know, and this is uh, as you know, I noticed I'd sent someone a text earlier on and I was like, oh, I wonder if they replied to my text. I was like, oh, should I go and check? Should I, should yeah. I turn off the screen and go and check if, if I've got a text back? And and I didn't need to know that information, but it was just one tiny example of of, yeah. um, of, of distraction, of which there are just millions. But you also so showed great concentration. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there are times when you have a stronger level of concentration and you're less distracted and other times when, when yep. it's, it's it's just interesting, I think, you know, that, that idea of right view being that entry point to the Dharma. And I think we all have that now. Yep. And and then just going deeper is just gradually chiseling away at all of those distractions, which 
make us deprioritize it and yeah. keep forgetting that that is probably the most important thing we can do with our lives um, and instead chase some kind of achievement so sorry that was just just sort of some reflections based on um yeah what, what i heard tonight from you and uh, and um, and from the sharing as well yeah okay thank you tom well said yeah right right view uh, we we begin and end at the same point don't we the, the eightfold path you could say is a circular path in that way yeah. uh, we're going to get into this a little deeper next week with the analysis of the eightfold path uh, but it is it is just that, you know, it's, at first it's the, the recognition that maybe I don't know everything. Or in my case, you know, all the different so-called Buddhist practices I had done up until that point just didn't do it. And, you know, it was it was dissatisfaction. But you can also say it was, you know, I wanted to achieve something that I knew I wasn't getting elsewhere. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew I knew what it wasn't. Um, yeah, and so now, you know, there's even a word for this, in, in chanda, which is skillful desire. It's the desire towards awakening. And it's even reflected in right effort. Right effort points to how do we achieve the Dhamma. It's by the Eightfold Path. You know, again, it, it's the, uh, the Buddha recognized that it was not enough to tell people or describe the awakened state as being free of ignorance because he knew that feedback loop. And so he gave us this simple... <laughs> Eightfold path in order to do that, you know, to go from the initial stage of I don't understand to the profound stage of yes, I do understand these four truths. So, thank you, Tom. Excuse me, Mateo. Um, yeah, I was thinking what, what Tom said, also Jordan, and I don't know why I focus on the word. A holiday when Jordan made this example and I was asking myself why do we need holiday huh. so it's, it's it's another just to make an example so it's another form of distraction or like a, or like when Tom say oh I'm waiting for the text it's I think that all sort of escapism the whole sort of like a, I'm sorry I missed that last line Tom Mateo in there are a sort of escapism escapism or yep. And, you know, because I was thinking, like, in a, in a very, probably it's very superficial, thinking if people need the holiday, it's probably because they're not happy where they are. No, because if you need to go Usually. holiday in a place, hot place, relax, probably you have, like, a very, I don't know, you have a shitty job, you live in a bad city, so all this stuff. And, and when you start to think, you lose your money. Think people, most of people are very insane. They live in a place they don't like, they do something they don't like, and then they wait like for maybe one week every year just to yep. acknowledge it. It's yep. insane. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's good to recognize all this form of distraction. But for me it's really important also to don't fall again in the same trap. Yes. Come back to the example, Tom, and like if I'm waiting for the text, it's very good to say, Okay, the text I can reply later, no, it's there, I know it's there. But then like to don't fall again in the same mistakes. So, or, for example, for me, like I decided uh, last year, I think it was like six months ago, I decided to, to just delete WhatsApp because I was like, I was distracted. Yeah. You know, I was there looking uh, and then I stopped it. And then I even, I, and even I, I realized that I forced myself to say, okay, I know somebody contacted me. I will look later by tonight. But then I was curious to look and you start to get crazy for something that is not important at all yeah 
And my solution, it was a, I want to say breakthrough. It was like, oh, I'm doing the right things. Then people, they can call to me. Then I say, no, okay, let's cancel this. Let's cancel the social media. Yeah. And I say like, they're just distracting all the time. Like, I'm sure that tomorrow the world's still there. If I don't read all That's this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Matei. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I never really got into social media anyway. Um, I used to automatically post some of my uh, uh, writings there, but I stopped doing that. I just don't, I, it's, it's just a huge distraction. I, I, I don't really see, uh, I, I don't need to get too deep into it. But yeah, and, and, and you know, most human beings, again, this is what the Buddha awakened to. We, we, we engage in a concerted moment-by-moment effort to make, remain distracted from what's occurring. And it's interesting that, you know, the, some of the wealthiest people in the world became wealthy because they figured out the best way to distract the most people. And again, I, I've got a judgment on them. I'm good, you know, good for them. Good for the Sergey Brins in the world. Um, again, you might want to get into what they do with it, but, uh, you know, that, that that's just the truth. And it's always been that way. You know, the, uh, Muhammad Ali became the world's greatest heavyweight fighter because he was able to distract the most people to pluck down 50 bucks to go see him fight. I mean, it's just the nature of the world we live in. I'm sorry, Mateo, you were going to say something. No, I would just say, like, I think everything pretty much can be useful. It can be also used for mindfulness and for me, but it depends how you use some. Yeah, I see yeah. something very trivial. Yeah. I think it's like, you can be on social media all day, but then if you do because it's your work or because maybe you're looking for some valuable info, but, you know, then most of people just looking, oh, my friend had this for breakfast and for lunch. So it's a, it's a very distracting. Yeah. yeah. Again, that, another good point. You're, you're bringing up right intention. You know, what is my intention? So there, they, there, there may be a valuable reason to engage in social media, you know, but if it's just for a distraction, it's like anything else. You know, whatever we do for distraction can only be to our detriment at some point. That doesn't mean that if I go on Facebook after I'm done with you, I, you know, I'm done. It, it just means it's an unskillful moment, potentially. Uh, and, and that all comes back to, to uh, our own self-responsibility. How do I want to live my life in this moment? It, and again, this is me as, as the Dharma teacher. Uh, no, it's not me as a Dharma teacher. It's me as a Dharma practitioner. What do I want out of this moment? Do I want a calm and peaceful mind or do I want to grasp after something? Do I want to make something of myself other than what I can possibly be? And for many, many years, the answer was yes. Inadvertently or unconsciously, yes, I want to be something that I can't be. And let me keep trying to do that. That's that idea of of a fabricated achievement. And the Dhamma allowed me to realize, and this, this particular sutta teaches, that I can only be a human being, but guess what? Being a human being is everything. Because if I understand that, what else is there? Because human being is not having the most or the biggest or the largest or the fastest. A human being's life is defined by knowing you had a human life, isn't it? What else could it be? And the, the, the events of that life, the quality of that life, it's two different things. The events of that life are unimportant and do not reflect accurately on the quality of life. The only thing that can reflect on the quality of my life, no matter how it looks like on the outside, is what I'm holding in mind. And if what I'm holding in mind contributes to a calm and peaceful mind, a, a quality of mind of radical acceptance of this moment, 
you know, just to, to be a little bit silly, that I am the wealthiest man in the world. Because I have everything in that moment, don't I? I have everything that everything, everybody thinks you can get by acquisition. I have it from understanding. That's what the Buddha awakened to. That was his big aha moment. Because remember, Siddhartha Gautama was grasping after the same things that everybody else was until he had that moment described in the Nagara Sutta. He recognized that feedback loop rooted in ignorance and propelled by greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. And we, in the sutta and in our practice, we find a way to interrupt that process, to stop the eye-making, and just, just, live, just live as a human being. Yeah, just to touch on this, just a moment, I don't want to go too, too much further. Without a well-concentrated mind and radical acceptance of a human experience, humanity is too afraid, uh, it, it's too, um, it can be too fear-inducing to accept, unless we understand it. Because all of us, from the time we're born to right now, are always exposed to some of the horrors of having a human life. And we hear about that. And, uh, a lot of times, especially for those of us in more um, in first world countries, it almost always seems like it's over there. It's over there. There's wars and there's this and disease. But this COVID thing hit everybody, didn't it? And so a lot of people had the opportunity to lose their minds over it, and we did so. But we also understand as wise Dharma practitioners, this is just what's occurring in the world. And so we don't have to lose our minds over it. Some of us do, and that's okay. But we can recognize what's occurring in the world in a, in a way that is different from others because we don't take it personally. But it's still happening to us, isn't it? We're human beings. You know, I, I got the vaccines. I, and I think I had a touch of it. I never got tested a little while ago. Um, but it's all a consequence of having a human life. So I don't not want... What am I trying to say with all this, this last little speech? I don't think that COVID-19 is a good thing, but it's a necessary thing. In order for me to have this human life that I'm having, I have to live in a, in a world that has COVID-19. And of course, then I make rational decisions about how to deal with it. But there's a, a, there's a difference between that way of thinking and treating a virus, something that is really completely impersonal, treating a virus with, as an object of hate or even fear. Because that doesn't lead to rational decisions and rational thinking. So, again, using, using that, probably shouldn't even use it anymore. Um, it really, uh, in, uh, a well-focused understanding of uh, what we're doing here with Four Noble Truths. Are there any other questions before we finish with Meta? Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, next week's class is on the, the, the Maga Vibhanga Sutta, the analysis of, uh, Vibhanga translates loosely into analysis, so analysis of Maga, the Great Path, analysis of the Eightfold Path, where we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail. Uh, but, okay, we'll finish with uh, Metta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, 
Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thanks, John. See, See you, you all soon. Time. Thanks a lot, Thank you all. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.